Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. My guest this week maybe thinks more about that divide than about how we might uh, cross it. He is Eduardo Porter. He was born in Phoenix and grew up in the United States, Mexico, and Belgium. He's an economics reporter for the New York Times, where he was a member of the editorial board from 2007 to 2012, and the economic scene columnist from 2012 to 2018. His book is called American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. It is not an uplifting read. I will just let that be known. It is an important read, and we talk about why. And in the end, I think we get somewhere where at least we're facing towards the light, if not actually feeling it. So, coming right up, Eduardo Porter. Eduardo, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, your patience. Normally, I might not say that on the air, but I feel like we just need to Everyone needs to appreciate each other's patience these days. So uh, let's make a practice of it. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, this is a weird world we're in now, and patience would be very, will be a valuable asset. Yes. So I am excited to talk to you about your book. Um, My first question for you is, how did you come to write this? Because you come from a very much a news background, right? Like you you wrote for newspapers, you wrote for the Wall Street Journal, you're at the New York Times. And this is a this is a book that's not straight news, let's say. No, um, it certainly and, and so yeah. I'm curious if 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 you could tell us sort of your journey to coming to write it. Okay, that's it's interesting. It's it's more of a personal than a professional journey in a way. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this book in some way, pretty much since I moved to live in the U.S. Uh, I I grew up in Mexico. I lived outside of the United States until 20 years ago or so when I returned uh, um, to live here to work for the Wall Street Journal. Um, And I remember that, you know, I I, I remember feeling a really big shock. I, I mean, I was... Let me backtrack. I was I was he the, the the journal hired me to write about Latino issues. It was there was you know this enormous excitement about the growth of the Hispanic population, and they thought, well, here's this Mexican guy. Let's hire him to write about you know this growing Hispanic population and what it means for businesses. And so I went down to L.A. and started writing about that stuff. And one thing that struck me in my going about reporting, but more just living there, was this sense of how rigid the borders of race and ethnicity seemed to me. And that struck me as, as kind of unique. Um, and, 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 and I couldn't help but think that that had something to do with what I perceived to be a very weak social safety net in the United States. I had lived in Belgium, in England, in Japan. I was used to the notion that rich countries build kind of like pretty elaborate, sophisticated safety nets. (laughs) And I was suddenly in the U.S., which is really, you know, the richest country on earth. And the, you know, the apparatus to protect kind of like the the unlucky, the downtrodden, you know, um, um, the less fortunate seemed pretty threadbare by comparison. 
And so I, I, I kind of like thought about those two things way back then, you know. And and so when when the 2016 election came around, and um, big fast forward there, um, I when I heard the rhetoric coming out of the presidential campaign when, you know, which was a lot about, you know, bad Mexicans coming over the border and the need to protect ourselves from these outsiders. Um, uh, that was very prominent in, in, in President Trump uh, rhetoric. I, this came back to me like in in a in a rush, you know. This this idea that you know these kinds of thoughts, these barriers that we've built to separate, you know, ourselves from the people of color, from the others of color, are really doing us a lot of damage because they're being used to build a state that has no space for empathy and. Sort of that's kind of like when I decided to write this book the way I did. Because I had been thinking for like three years of writing a different book about how the safety net in the U.S. was so bad. But, you know, it was more of an amorphous kind of thought. And here suddenly I got this thought, well, no, no, this is a book about what's motivating that. And what's motivating that is deep and pervasive. And I don't think it's sufficiently acknowledged in this country. Sorry for the long answer. Oh, no, I, I appreciate that. I, I feel you sort of describe your journey in the book because you talk about being uh, binational um, and having grown up in Mexico and also with your grandparents. And it seems like your experience with your grandparents actually forms a real core of the book, too, because that's that's they introduced you to the American way of life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, they exactly. Because I left the I, I was born in the U.S., but I left very young when I was six. And so my, you know, I, I don't really remember those early years very well. So most of my earliest memories of the United States are through the prism of my grandparents' life. And they were working class. Um, he was an electrician. She was a librarian. They lived in Phoenix. They were on Social Security by the time I was around and retired. And, and so their life represented for me the American life. And it looked like a pretty cool life. You know, they, these guys were working class. <laughs> And they had a really neat house. I mean, again, it wasn't the greatest neighborhood, you know, but it was a really nice, solid house with air conditioning and all sorts of gadgets and a car and a pickup truck and a trailer that they would drive up to Sedona to spend the summer. It was a really, you know, where I grew up, Mexico, electricians don't get that life. You know, retired electricians for sure do not. And so there was something kind of exemplary or superior um, um, that I sensed in the way that the United States had built this kind of uh, enormous middle class that 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 allowed such um, such you know uh, commodities such, such well being for for working class people and in some ways uh, the difference between your grandparents' way of life and the way of life of a white middle class person today is one of the parallel stories in the book right because. This book is about race, and it is as much about people of color. And it seems to me that your grandparents' experience, what you had with them, what you were able to see, that that very kind of like solid middle-class lifestyle. Uh, throughout the book, you talk about how middle-class white people today struggle. And this book is 
as much about white people as it is about people of color. And and I also want to just pinpoint or bookmark the idea that we should probably dive into that phrase, people of color, because also in this book, you talk about how that is also a place where we can look for racial divisions. Yeah. But the struggle of the white middle class is a really important part of this book. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in a, in a sort of nutshell, I'm arguing that the sort of racial divisions to put them in a really mild and open way uh, that that's kind of <laughs> like stopped the creation of a more robust welfare state um, hurt not only blacks and Latinos and Asian Americans and 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 you know other minority populations they also hurt uh, a lot of uh, Amer- white Americans that were struggling that would have also benefited from a more robust welfare state. And so, yes, I think this book is very, I, I really hope that white American workers read this book because I think it's important to their their future well-being. Is I think it's important for their future well-being to understand these dynamics. And let's, let's talk about those dynamics and the history here that you kind of untangle. Uh, we won't go all the way back to the 1619, you know, date, but maybe we should start with uh, FDR because uh, we are in the middle of a moment which seems like we're going to need the same kind of government intervention. So maybe you can talk about how that moment in history, this big government intervention to help save, let's just say, America in quotes maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of set us up for where we are today in terms of resentments um, between uh, white people and people of color. Yeah. I mean, the, the arc, as I see it, very schematically, is, you know, the shock of the of the Great Depression opens political space for uh, President Roosevelt to build the basically the first social safety net this country had seen, you know, to deploy the government uh, in the service of the well-being of the governed. You know, there were myriad pro, uh, programs, housing programs, work programs, uh, social security. There was uh, um, um, unionization became legal. And then, uh, well, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, allowed for for, for unionization and, and, and uh, collective bargaining. There was uh, um, a, a host of programs designed to better the lives of working American men and women. Um, but in that, but designing that uh, um, required a kind of like a political coalition that was reluctant, if not like adamantly opposed, to include uh, African Americans in the deal. And so at every turn, you have um, like different rules for African-Americans and for whites or, you know, tweaks in the design of the program that essentially limited it to, you know, to white Americans. I mean, one of the biggest would be the fact that in uh, um, um, Social Security at the onset, it excludes both domestic labor and agricultural labor, which happened to be the sectors that employed two thirds of African-American workers. So the the uh, as a package when you go back and look at it it's like the 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 whole new deal program had very kind of like narrow borders and those borders kind of like invited in whites only and then you know in the 1960s 30 years after 
uh, um, the Great Depression, when uh, President Lyndon Johnson tries to open up this concept of the of the welfare state to invite people of color, and there's you know there's civil rights legislation, then there's Johnson's War on Poverty, and all the programs designed there to try to specifically help uh, um, um, poor uh, African American families. Then what I argue is that that's when the consensus for a welfare state just collapsed. A consensus that had been built by Roosevelt just wasn't ready to admit non-whites into the tent. Because it wasn't really a consensus. That's the tricky part, right? Yeah. Is that it was a consensus of white people by white people for white people. It was this illusion of consensus, really. Yeah. Um, I, I think about that a lot when we kind of romanticize the past and romanticize the ways that people got together and made compromises, you know, between liberals and conservatives. Um, it's easy to make a compromise if both of you were white, let's say. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I've got to admit, just just returning to my to my this this image of my grandparents' life, I did not think about that at the time, but as an adult returning to the United States, one of the things that hit me was that this kind of like exemplary life that they led was also pretty much reserved for whites. You know, they, they, mm -hmm. this wasn't the life of mm -hmm. the working class Latino even back then or the working class African-American. And certainly it is not the experience of the working class writ large now. And let's stick with history for a little while longer because I, I I learned a, a really huge um, a fact from, from your book, which is there wasn't just a Southern strategy for the Nixon campaign. There was a Northern strategy. And that, again— um, plays out today. Tell us about Nixon's northern strategy. Well, the idea is to essentially drive a wedge between organized labor, which is predominantly white, and African Americans. And those are or two or were at the time. Now I think it's it's more ambiguous, but at the time those were two very important pillars of support for the Democratic Party. Um, the way to do this was essentially, I mean, one way to do this was to um, attack welfare as a, um, a reward for unworthy, non-working people of color um, and, 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 you know, using the taxes of hardworking uh, Americans, and it was, you didn't really even have to articulate it, uh, this openly, but it, the, the, the assumption was, you know, white working Americans in the service of programs for non-white, non-working Americans. And this was a very good way of, you know, of creating this breach between these two constituencies. You know, the, uh, there were other, you know, other ways ha have been deployed too. For instance, trying to force uh, 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 Democrats to vote for legislation that would uh, impose on contractors the obligation to employ people in the proportion of their, you know, their representation in the general population, which would essentially obligate them to hire more people of color. I mean, this was another, and this was resisted pretty intensely by unions. So these kinds of of, of strategies to create that wedge have been, I think, very powerful in the Democratic Party, in, in, excuse me, in American politics since Nixon, but to this day. 
Right. One of the things I found fascinating about that Nixon Northern strategy is that one idea that he and his advisors had would be not to uh, demonize welfare entirely. Instead, they would whiten the welfare recipients. Uh, they would they would sort of change the literally the complexion of welfare. Uh, and and it, you point out there's an irony there. They would have blown up um, the amount that the U.S. spends on a social safety net, but they wanted to craft it really specifically. Tell us a little bit about about that idea. Yeah, you're talking about the family assistance plan, the fact yes, which yes. is which which Nixon wanted this plan, this FAP to replace welfare then, which was, uh, um, you know, mainly the assistance for uh, dependent families with children, which was a New Deal program created by, by Franklin Roosevelt. Um, um, so, so Nixon wants to offer a plan that instead of going for families w- with uh, dependent children, which were there were there were often unemployed families um, that were uh, of color. He wanted a program that would go to kind of working class white Americans too. So I, I mean, it, it, in some regards, the FAP was a first shot at a universal basic income. It was a mm-hmm. very very broad um, um, program that was supposed to to grant benefits to a really enormous share of the population. I can't remember the numbers, but it was way more than the AFDC uh, um, um, was doing at the time. And so this would, the idea would that would be to make uh, uh, um, the, the, the welfare system more white and, and, and that way um, kind of like in some regard gain white support for the welfare system even as it again, I think, kind of like pushed into this wedge between uh, between white working class Americans and 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 African Americans. So like pull trying to pull um, uh, working class white Americans into the fold of the Republican Party and away from the Democratic Party. And this, of course, uh, I, when I read about this, I thought, oh, there's Trump, right? <laughs> Welfare for white people is kind of his was his stump speech. Yeah. Yeah, no, there's a lot of echoes <laughs> of, the, of, the, of that past today, um, to, be, to be sure. I mean, and, and, and that's a very uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, maybe we should move more into the present. I'm almost, I'm a little bit trepidatious to do so because I, I do feel like there's almost um, too much, um, there's not a lot of good news, let's say, um, when you turn your lens um, from what you were looking at as the structural problems and where they got started um, to where we look today. I would say that the number one lesson I learned from your book, and I'd just like you to expand on this, is that the cost of racial animus is a generalized distrust of assistance and social cohesion and empathy, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and let let me linger on that a little bit. I am very hesitant to use the word racism as a blanket for all of these feelings Um, because I think it immediately takes you to a very specific political conversation uh, um, and 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 instead of grievances and, and knee jerk reactions and it kind of like precludes sort of like some some deeper, more subtle thinking about what the problem is. And I like the thought, 
I mean, so well, the, the way I think of it is more there's a variety of, 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 of kind of biases. There's, you know, fear, there's contempt, there is mistrust, and th there's just simple tribalism. You know, the idea that people stick to their own groups and trust them more than they trust people from outside those groups. And the borders of those groups can be of race, but they can also be and often are of religion or language or more broadly of culture. And so I'm what I'm sort of arguing is that racial barriers in that broader sense that are not necessarily of, you know, you know, neo-Klansmen walking down some street uh, uh, and trying to to uh, celebrate uh, the days of lynching. It's more like this kind of like routine daily sense of separation, uh, again, mistrust, uh, contempt, a variety of things there that kind of like prevent us from thinking of our society as this place that contains us all, of thinking as uh, American as like what we are, which is a variety of different sorts of people. And this really stops us. I think it, it stops us from becoming a true nation in a way. I mean, I'm not sure if I answered your question or if I went off the, <laughs> I went off the edge. You know what? Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I, I think that I, I heard um, something that I, I really want to um, highlight, which, which is, if I can kind of summarize, tell me if I've, I've, I've not got the point here, which is that tribalism or racism or, or racial animus, however you want to state it, whatever you're describing, the sense of distrust among people who are different from each other, yeah. it kind of breeds more of it. Yeah. Like once you kind of put a fissure in society, especially based on what people look like or what language they speak, these these outside things that people don't have that much control over, um, you start to see distrust between all of those different groups. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. The, uh, the 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 of course the black white dividing line is the most damaging, salient, right. bloody line in American history. Th that's absolutely true. But it is not the only line. And you know, the the there's a Latinos have a story of being on the wrong side of you know, kind of ethnic hostility. And in fact, there is a, you know, if you go to places where there's been a, a, a long history of, of uh, communities shared by African-Americans and Hispanic-Americans, there's been a lot of hostility between those two groups too. And, and, and even more, I mean, you go to LA and like Mexicans and Salvadorians can hate each other, you know? So it's, the lines can be built in many different places and often are, and they tend to work in this way against solidarity, against empathy, against building public goods, common goods that will actually benefit all. One of the factoids in your book that I underlined and exclamation pointed was that you found a study where basically every racial group, every racial or ethnic group believes that another group gets more welfare than they do. Yeah, yeah, right? that's pretty crazy. Yeah, no, <laughs> they asked it of, of, of whites and whites think that mostly non-whites get, you know, all the goodies and they're the ones that are paying the taxes. But if you ask African-Americans or Latinos, they think the same thing, that it's the whites that are getting the goodies and they are paying in. So it is a very funny, uh, uh, s well, interesting, say, say similarity. Uh, I also argue there, though, that kind of like because it is it until 
now at any rate, it's whites that pretty much hold political power in this country, uh, that their kind of biases are sort of more relevant than those of Latinos or or African-Americans. Right. And I'm going to take a quick break and then really zero in on kind of where we are today, maybe even literally where we are today. Cool. Uh, We'll be right back. Did you know that the average American throws away 65 pounds of clothing per year, 85% of which ends up in landfills? Whether your mission is to live a more sustainable life and reduce your fashion footprint, or to cut down on your shopping bills, or let's say to not leave your house as much, but to still feel well-dressed, Le Tote can help you. For a flat monthly fee, you get access to their entire closet. Choose the clothes and accessories you'd like to rent. Once the box of fashion reaches your door, wear everything out and about or not out and about for as long as you like. When you're done, you just send the items back in their prepaid envelope. They even do the laundry. Every time you rent rather than buy, you do yourself and the planet a favor. I know that for me, being cooped up can give me an itching mouse finger, click buy, put in cart, whatever. I actually used Latote this week to get some exercise clothes. They have some. So I can look fashionable when I'm here in my home working out with videos instead of with other people. That may seem weird, but we have to do what we can to keep our spirits up. Might try Latote. They're offering 40% off your first two months if you're my listener. So visit letote.com and use the code FRIENDS1, that's F-R-I-E-N-D-S-1, to get your discount and begin your sustainable style journey today. So the thing is about the wonderful solution of, of renting clothes rather than buying them, there are some clothes you, you can't rent, and that is your foundational clothes. Bras, for instance. I mentioned my itchy shopping finger, And one of the things I bought this week, because I am lounging around, I thought to myself, you know what? I really need a lounging bra because I don't want to just like go freeform all day. Uh, So I went to Third Love because I love Third Love, as everyone knows, even before they were my sponsor. I love Third Love and they have a lounging bra and it is on its way to get into my hot little hands any minute now. I'm so excited. Uh, Third Love is just a great company. They've been so supportive of me. They're supportive, uh, literally, I guess. And they're designed to fit you, uh, not the other way around. They are designed with measurements from millions of women and their bra sizes are made to fit you for life. They have over 80 bra sizes, including those half cup sizes of which I am one of the people that fits into. So take Third Love's Fit Finder quiz, answer a few simple questions, and find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Hands down, it will be the most comfortable bra you'll own. Straps that won't slip and tagless labels, no itching. Lightweight, super thin memory foam cups mold to your shape. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now they're offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash friends to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash friends for 15% off today. There is a a reason for urgency in your book. And, And we could talk about it in one of two ways, or we can do both. One of the pieces of of urgent news you have is that these ruptures and um, mountains of of distrust uh, among people of different groups can undermine the entire American project, uh, in part because we are going to be uh, 
maybe I feel ambivalent about the phrase majority minority. Yeah. Um, but because we are changing demographically and your concern, I guess we'll talk about this first. Your concern has to do with what happens when the burden shifts, right? Well, actually, my main concern is when the demography is actually the, mo- the, the, the space of time between now and then. Oh, okay. Between now and when the demographic shifts. And, and, and actually, I'm, I'm thinking as I speak here, and, and I also have some concerns about that moment, but I definitely uh, have, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm worried that between now, between the, 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 our present and the moment in the 2040s or whenever, uh, in, in mid-century, that people that we now call people of color, you know, Asian Americans, Hispanic Americans, African Americans, become altogether the majority of the population and non-Hispanic whites kind of like fall below 50%. I fear that between now and then, our politics are going to be principally driven by the fear of non-Hispanic white Americans that this demographic shift is going to happen. And I'm really worried about this fearful electorate that's kind of freaking out over a future not that far down the line where they no longer hold political power. I fear the decisions of this constituency as it tries to hang on to power and um and 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 as i mean i as as it becomes increasingly concerned over the 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 rise of of the non white america mm-hmm. i think that that concern to some extent explains the presidential election of 2016 Perhaps not entirely, mm-hmm. but to a very important extent, I think voters, uh, white voters in 2016 were voting out of racial fear and they found a candidate that sort of like shared their perspective on this and they voted for him. And I I can see that continuing into our future. So that really worries me. Yeah. And I guess I'll elaborate on my own point about Trump. Uh, pushing welfare for white people, I feel like a lot of his messaging had to do with, I'm going to take care of you. And the you was sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, but always intended to be you white people. And I'm going to expand the welfare state for you. And don't worry, none of those other people are going to get any of it. I'm going to make sure that they're punished um, in one way or another. But you guys you guys are going to get the goodies. He wanted to make good on that promise. And like, I don't think he has. <laughs> yeah. um, as, as you point out, like, you know, uh, middle-class white Americans have, have gotten also the shitty end of the stick, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, they're marginally better off, but they've voted against, they, they voted against their um, economic best interests so consistently that yeah. the safety net that used to hold them somewhat above every you know people of color that safety net is getting so tattered yeah. that they're having the same problems yeah yeah i mean i th- yeah if i find that actually 
crazy. I was in Harlan, Kentucky, reporting a story for The Times um, some months ago. And um, Harlan is one of the counties that most relies on federal government benefits. I, I think they amount to something over half of the personal income of Harlan residents. And yet there's this kind of hatred of the government there uh, that is, you know, extremely hard to explain given the reliance on uh, on the benefits of the government. And and but if you listen to the rhetoric with which government benefits are attacked, that it is rhetoric that has been used since the 1980s to kind of like make this create this image of uh, an unworthy, not American like you are kind of moocher that you are kind mm-hmm. of financing to stay on 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 his or her couch um, while you work hard. And, you know, there's there's actually very, very few non-whites in, you know, in Appalachia for sure and I think in all of Kentucky. But they, um, they nonetheless harbor lots of misgivings and mistrust about, you know, what these other people are doing and how they are like drawing from from the, you know, the public offers. Right. But one of the reasons why they're doing so badly is because they bought into that rhetoric. So they voted again and again to to weaken that safety net. Absolutely. If they weren't so (laughs) motivated by this mythology of welfare, they themselves would have a better welfare state with which to lift themselves up. Or Actually, I don't even like that phrasing about lifting oneself up. Yeah, yeah, I get that. It seems to me like a fundamental category error in a, in the way that America has approached that social safety net, it, which is uh, between the lines of your book all the way, yeah. which is that we've we've always positioned welfare as something that you use to get out of poverty and that you deserve and that if you're really good, you won't stay on it very long yeah. and um, you'll eventually pull yourself up. Um and we, and rather than conceiving of welfare the way the Europeans do, which is just everybody deserves a certain standard of living, yeah, period. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Boom. And, and then you go look and you look around at the stats and not to like kind of like bore you, but, you know, we have the highest poverty rate in amongst the industrialized countries in the OECD uh, by international measures. We have, you know, and the, the highest suicide rate of, you know, of Western nations excluding Japan and Korea. We have, you know, the lowest uh, life expectancy at birth from compared to all rich countries. And, and these things are not like just a set of weird coincidences. They are sort of like symptoms of um, a, a nation that kind of like refused to build the infrastructure uh, necessary to keep its less fortunate, you know, above water. And and listen to bring it into the present. I'm yes. really worried about what that had that what impact that has on our ability to confront a public health crisis like the one that we're going through now. Oh yes, let's uh, dive in. If you look at like the number <laughs> of hospital beds that we have, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, just really look at the, you know, we have like 2.8 hospital beds um, um, per per thousand people. Korea has 12. Germany has eight. France has six. And, you know, uh, um, we have 27 million people without health insurance going into a public health crisis. Uh, and, and our hospitals, rather than providing, you know, these 
you know, beds that would serve in a, in a public health crisis have spent their time like investing in cyclotrons to do proton beam therapy for cancer, which I understand is not that very helpful, but it's amazingly expensive and very profitable. So we, we have built a society with very, very few public goods compared to other societies of our level of income. And I mean, I think that this crisis is going to be one where you're going to see the value of having public goods. And by that, I mean, you know, public health insurance and all like massive tests for coronavirus paid by the public sector and, you know, a lot of beds in the hospital that might not be profitable for private hospitals, but that you might need in an emergency like this. And I'm I'm concerned we're going to see sort of a repeat of the FDR uh, strategy of, yes, we'll do a robust welfare state, but we'll figure out ways that it only benefits a certain kind of person, which is to say probably a, a white person. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Be- and I'm especially worried about that because it, it seems clear to me that it's going to be working class white people who will be one of the community's hardest hit because yeah. uh, they live in red states. And it's if you look at the list of states that have done shit to <laughs> contain the virus, yeah, they're red states. They're all red states. And they've also the states that have rejected like Medicare expansion or yeah. Medicaid expansion. Yeah. And those people are going to need to be saved. I'm not saying that people of color won't also suffer disproportionately, by the way. I, I definitely believe that they will. <laughs> but yeah. the other group that's going to get hit really hard are the people that you've talked about as being, you know, the people in Harlan, Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder, I mean, I wonder about that. I mean, I understand that, yes, they're, they're, public health system is is inferior to anything that you'll get in New York. But I also wonder, who, because they, they live in such sparsely populated communities and, you know, maybe the virus will not spread as quickly there as it will in a densely, densely packed place like, you know, Brooklyn, where I live. But but for sure, I mean, I just on the broader point that that we have to worry about their well-being and their survival and their health. It's, it's of course, it goes without saying. And I, I mean, just moving a little bit further into the future away from, from this public health emergency now, I mean, I'm just thinking, what's the economy going to look like if our politics are determined again by this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, white fear, to put it, in some way, because the economy of the United States is, is increasingly dependent on non-white work just to pay the taxes, to pay for the pensions and the Medicare of the white baby boomers that are entering retirement to keep this economy going. I mean, without, for instance, without if you cut down immigration, which seems to be the ultimate purpose of this administration, your labor force declines. Um, So there's enormous kind of implications for the future prosperity of this country, including all the non-Hispanic whites who live in it, from this kind of like more xenophobic uh, um, um, uh, kind of rhetoric and, and, and policy set. Right. Well, I just look at, again, like sort of the ways that they might try to help the government help quote, unquote, help, I don't know, uh, and wait, the ways they might target this help. Um, for instance, you know, we already know they want to bail out the cruise industry and the casino industry and the airline industry. Yeah. But 
also on the front lines of, of this crisis are people who work in grocery stores, yeah. people who work in the back of restaurants, yeah. um, people who do domestic labor of various kinds. I know yeah. like my, the, the, the lovely woman who runs the service that cleans my apartment, um, I have been thinking about her. We're going to continue paying her, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, those people who are lar- largely, or a lot of them are people of color. Like yeah. they need a bailout just as much. And I worry they're not going to be on the radar. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially uh, immigrant workers, they're going to be cut off. I'm pretty sure. And, and think of this other, think of this other industry, home health aids, personal care aids. It's an enormous mm-hmm, workforce mm-hmm. and it's pretty much mm-hmm. entirely immigrant women, uh, earning yep. minimum wage. Yep. Um, and, and they're, they're not only about essential to the well-being of so many people who, you know, have mobility problems, health problems and whatnot, but the, these folks are, I, I guess they're also putting their health at risk in their job for for yeah. the minimum wage. And um, so right. I, I, but I find it very, I, I don't really think, at least rhetorically, that anything that the government is going to come up with is thinking about this class of people. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a, it, to me, it's just a question of how much that racism, that implicit racism can be mitigated, you know, like how much the Democrats can maneuver um to expand what has become like we're all socialists now right like (laughs) everybody's for a universal basic income now like when it when a crisis hits we don't have to care about you know like uh, it's so infuriating so i'll just for me personally to hear like oh we don't need to worry about the deficit we're in the middle of a crisis hey yeah hey buddy (laughs) we were having a crisis before this like (laughs) maybe you didn't notice (laughs) Um, like the public health crisis actually started decades ago yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Having 27 million people without health insurance in a country of this wealth is a public health crisis. I, all alone, yeah. right there, um, for right. sure. And one thing I want, I want to just just nod at is that I don't think we need to argue that you know the politicians and the corporate elites and those folks are necessarily racist and they're pushing a racist agenda. But I do think that racial hostility is a very useful tool um, to mobilize voters in the service of an agenda that might really be about something else. And so you look at the kind of policies that the, the kind of legislation that we got from the Trump administration, well, we got a huge tax cut that really, really wasn't about helping whites and not helping people of color. It was about helping very rich people and not really helping anybody else, which is kind of like has been a standard prescription for a very long time. So it was so I sort of like see that there is this rhetorical uh, uh, recourse to, you know, ethnic racial politics and, 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 and animus and so forth. But the objective, you know, is, is it doesn't have to be uh, um, uh, motivated by race, if you know what I mean. I, I do. And I think that that's a good example of, of the, the tax um, cut is a good example of what you're talking about, which is sort of rhetorically framed around like, you know, you want to get the, you know, lazy people off the welfare rolls and the people who are deserving or the people who have already worked really hard. Um, and, and there's no, and while the tax cut did hurt people of color, um, it wasn't like we're going to, the, the aim wasn't like, how do we screw them? Right. Um, they're screwing a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I guess what I'm thinking about is sort of a repeat of that northern strategy where the welfare state gets drastically expanded, right? Yeah. Um, But in a way that disproportionately picks up um, uh, white people, basically. Yeah, that is an interesting When I see Tom Cotton talking about giving away a lot of government money, (laughs) mm, (laughs) like – Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It makes me a little suspicious. It's not what one would expect. Right. And I don't think, and I guess I want to echo what you're saying. And I mean, it's actually, you wouldn't necessarily know this unless you listen to a lot of episodes, but, but this is something that's come up a lot, which is like calling someone racist is kind of really fraught. So I'm not saying like Tom Cotton is personally like doesn't like people of color. I am saying, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's going on inside his heart, like, we should be wary of white Republicans bearing gifts. That's my – that is that is all I think I need to say. You just made me recall that, you know, the last big kind of like safety net policy push that we've got from this administration was all about, you know, bumping – bumping folks off of the Medicaid rolls. I mean, that's been going on in several <laughs> states with support from the federal government. The last budget that we got from the from from, from this administration included like a, a cut to pretty much every single uh, um, a federal assistance program for, for um, poor and working class people. So the idea that there is anything th- that helping the poor and the working class are front and central is, is, is clearly a joke. You're probably not going to go to the post office. You probably shouldn't go to the post office. But my good news for you is you don't have to go to the post office. You've never had to go to the post office. You could be using stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do at stamps.com. Their on-demand postage means you can skip any trip that you would have ever made to the post office. Plus, you can save money with discounts you cannot get at the post office. So whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or a warehouse sending out thousands of packages a day, or you, just you, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder that over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. And right now, my listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. I think actually it's appropriate to start talking about how you end the book, which is, let's say, um, uh, not all rainbows and sunshine. Okay. Uh, you have a very sober uh, perspective on the question of, so what do we do now? Uh, but I will still ask you, so what do we do now? <laughs> well, you know, authors are told that you should put some hope at the end of your book. because, you know, grim endings don't do very well. And so I really gave that a shot. I gave a shot at (laughs) looking for kind of dynamics and patterns in our recent history that might justify some sort of kind of optimism about our ability to overcome these kind of racial cleavages. 
And so there are some, you know, we did step back from the hyper-segregation of our our neighborhoods in the 1970s, and the U.S. is less segregated than it was then. We have had legislative successes. I mean, there was the Civil Rights Act. There was the uh, the Voting Rights Act. We did get Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, there have been— moments of victory in in the push to kind of building a more, you know, uh, inclusive country. Um, And you can also, and this is a point that many sociologists made, is, you know, the definition of white as we know it is not going to hold. As we become more mixed, as, you know, Latino and Hispanic and, and, and Asian populations grow, by the census definition at any rate, this whole, so whole notion that, there, that, that, that there's this white America and then this minority America is just going is, – is, is not going to be able to, to survive. We're going to become more comfortable with the notion of, 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 of mixed identities, of multifarious identities and tastes and religions and languages. And, 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 and maybe this kind of like more varied America will kind of have a space for empathy because it won't, the lines dividing it won't be as, as, as clear cut. And that's plausible to me. I, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a stupid <laughs> idea. Um, but, you know, at the end of the yeah. day, it kind of like relies a lot on, you know, on the fate leaping, you know, kind of far. Um, I don't see any evidence today. I mean, you look at polling amongst the young, and they're no more mm. really inviting of inclusiveness than the old. Um, you know, you uh, polls in, uh, uh, of young white Americans uh, find kind of like beliefs that are very similar to that of their older, uh, um, oh, um, older peers, older, older white Americans. And so I, I can't quite see like this country's uh, understanding of identity turning sharply in that direction or even not sharply. I don't see it moving in that direction. Um, maybe in some cities, that's true. Maybe there's, a, there's an interesting geographical um, kind of uh, a dynamic that, that gets underway in which you have more diverse urban settings, which are kind of like also more economically prosperous, uh, uh, move in one direction, you know, like New York and San Francisco and L.A. and so forth. And and rural America, which is still predominantly white and non-Hispanic and, you know, kind of like poor as a whole and not as economically vibrant, going an entirely different way politically. Um, so I could, I could, that could, but I, that's not a great future either. I mean, if you're thinking about the national politics, <laughs> you know, especially if you think of the Senate, the Senate, you know, where e- each state has two senators, regardless of how many people live in it, could look pretty grim under this scenario. So I think you have a, you have a, uh... I don't want to call it a negative um, perspective. I, I've searched very hard for the word sober um, and realistic, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I also want to try to find something here to think about that that offers possibility. Um, because I, I know for a fact that there's a lot of white people who I, I think assume that this changing demographic stuff will, you know, kind of wave magic, wave our hands, you know. Things will get better. And it's going to take more work than that. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder, as pessimistic as 
I probably sounded in talking about this moment and the and the amount of government aid and where the government aid will go today. I wonder if you find any hope in this moment um, that this moment of kind of reckoning that we're having. Well, you know, there are. <laughs> I have several thoughts about that. There is this whole idea that you know that a crisis is also an opportunity which we've heard before mm-hmm. uh, it's you yeah. know uh, the the last time i think i, I remember it was ram emanuel around 2009 and but th- i don't think it really went in the direction that he was hoping uh which seemed to be <laughs> we're going to get a new fdr moment a new new deal because of the great recession of 2009 and that did not happen. Um, but I think that to some extent it's true. Big crises open space for new ideas for and and uh, and and this might be one such moment. And then just to be, you know, a little bit more fair, I think, to to my interpretation of, of American history, there I mean, we have had some moments of some in which in where we've pushed for unity. So I don't want to poo-poo um, um, a, a neighborhood integration that has happened in some cities. I don't think it's as big a deal as some of the more enthusiastic uh, uh, proponents of, of, of reintegration and gentrification have it. I don't think, I think it's not at all clear that we really have a stable, we are moving towards a kind of like a stable, more integrated communities because income inequality is actually mm-hmm. still pushing them apart. But I, I think that that is a place to think about uh, um, it, when we're thinking about building a more cohesive country. So sort of like how can we think about – how can we think about those in terms of policies? I think, well, policies that push for residential integration, that push against utter segregation by income – through, I don't know, you know, um, a living, uh, um, so, sort of like a, a affordable housing policies and maybe um, a, a better, more robust thinking about, about Section 8 vouchers for low-income people to get into homes. I mean, I think that the, there are tools and I think there are people that are thinking of using these tools in a way that kind of like builds a more integrated kind of geographical space. And I think that a more integrated geographical space could help us in a way to think of each other more as just, you know, another human being rather than a human being across some line that I mistrust. And, you know, because also residential integration would help a lot in, edu- in on the educational angle because we are, I think, our ed- education system, which moved very much in favor of integration, has for some time been slipping back and we're getting more segregated mm-hmm. school districts, I think that is a problem. And I think that building integrated school districts would be a great place to try to, you know, put our policy effort. So I think, you know, anything that we can do to help bring people together, just like, like physically together and share experiences, I think would be very helpful. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure this is, you know, I'd feel naive if I said, yeah, we're getting there and, you know, that's the way. <laughs> but right. I do think that those are valuable right. thoughts and those would be valuable interventions. So you talked about how coming to write this book was something of a personal journey. And there is a lot of you um, in the book. 
And I always wonder when an author does write a book that comes from a place of a personal journey, where they got in the end. So I wonder, like, did you arrive at a different place than you thought you'd be in writing this book? Like, where did you end up in your journey? Yeah, but it's not it's not super great. In it, it's take, <laughs> <laughs> okay. It, it okay because it, 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 it sort of took me to a darker place, and mm. and again, I'm not quite sure if it's the process of writing the book or what I've been seeing happening in the country as I've written it. Those two things are probably interacting. But I am in a darker place than I was, you know, three or four years ago. And I fear, I fear for my daughter and my son who are, you know, mixed up Americans like (laughs) most Americans are these days and who might find themselves on the wrong side of, uh, you know, hostile politics. Um, and that really, you know, as I was, even though it's not, those weren't like super new thoughts as I wrote them down and I looked through our history and I looked at how institutions that, uh, I consider laudable and important, such as the labor movement also succumbed to this kind of racial animus. It also limited its, its power and, I think ultimately hamstrung the ability of working women and men of of, of getting of, of getting a better deal. Um, you know, it was hard to not feel a little depressed. Um, and mm. uh, so I, you know, it, yeah, it, it, it hasn't. There's it hasn't. I haven't come out the other end to some light. You know. Well, I can ask a question that may not be get us to light, but maybe can orient us, um, which is that I, am familiar, um, with depression myself. Uh, and I know, um, I always get a lot, a lot of feedback whenever we talk about it on the show. It's something that so many people struggle with, but we keep somehow, um, a lot of us are able to take that, you know, one step at a time through the day. So I'll try to try to get you to say what's keeping you going. Well, I think that the job, the job of writing about <laughs> these things, I mean, I think okay. that it, I think that we, the, 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 we can, one of the best things that we can do is try to become aware of this, to really incorporate this into our thinking and incorporate it in, into our thinking in a way that doesn't necessarily pit us against them. And so, for instance, I think that a lot of the argument from justice for reparations for um, the harms of slavery and 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 other instances of oppression of oppression of of Black Americans, I think that those arguments from justice, just as they may be, um, correct as they may be, are really not. I don't think are the way to move towards a better social understanding that where everybody fits. I see them as being inevitably divisive and 
I can't really quite imagine how you get from there to an American where everybody's feeling like, yeah, we're all in this boat and we're all out here to help each other. I don't quite see how you move from there to there. And and I think that the 2016 election is is kind of like uh, a, a sort of supports my skepticism about that. But so I do. But so and I think that we have to be able to talk about these things in this more you know, complicated way somehow that addresses that, that you know, the, the, this racial animus is really central to our history. We can't just assume that it's gone away because now we're in the 21st century and we had the Civil Rights Act. Uh, we have to really look at it in the face and accept that it's there. But then again, we have to start talking to each other about how, um, about how to overcome it. And of course, I do think that part, the the task is mostly a task of changing the views of of, of white Americans, which are the people who have held political power in this country forever. Um, but I also think that it would be a you know helpful if there were a broader conversation in which you know Latinos like me and African Americans and whites uh, can talk to each other about this. And so I think that writing about it and uh, I feel kind of good that I wrote this book. I mean, even though I just said that it sort of depressed me, um, I feel that this book was some way needed. Um, and it, I think I, I really hope that white Americans read it. And I also hope that African-Americans read it and, and they don't dismiss it because I have not experienced kind of like the pain of their history. Um, but I, because I think that this conversation needs us all. Yeah. Well, I think your book is necessary. Uh, and it is American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise. And I've been talking to Eduardo Porter. Thank you so much. Again, um, I'm going to thank you in this taping for your patience and generosity because I I am especially conscious of the patience and generosity we all need to have for each other right now. So thank, thank you very much, Anna Marie. This was very, uh, this was a very interesting conversation. That's it for the show. I often add a note at this point um, that might be personal, uh, that might be an attempt to remind you to take care of yourselves. We're being reminded all the time right now to take care of ourselves, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. We certainly need it. I think we need the reminders more than we need more care than usual, if that makes sense. One of the things I think that's been revealed in this crisis is not that we need each other now more than ever, but that we've always needed each other. We just haven't necessarily done that work. We've always needed to take care of ourselves. We just haven't always done it. We've always needed to reach out to people who might be alone, and we just haven't done it. Those of you who are completists will know in my last episode with Daniel Dresner, I talked about how much I hated the term silver linings, and I still hate it. But I do like the term unexpected gifts, because that's what sometimes pain can bring hard times can bring. Not silver linings, but unexpected gifts. 
I hope you and yours find many unexpected gifts. And I hope you take care of yourselves. Mm-hmm.